Well, we are, um, if you are here on any regular basis, um, you know that we're going to suspend um, uh, the series. Hey, Ben, can you help, Val? We're going to uh, suspend our series on spiritual warfare and talking about uh, our spiritual armor. And thank you, sir. We're going to suspend that, uh, talking about spiritual warfare, our armor, talking about demons um, and the effects of demons on humanity and the interaction with angels and demons and armor, etc. As we've been talking about that, we'll pick that up next week um, and how they influence our thought life, which influences our actions. We'll pick that up next week because today is Easter. Yes? Yes? Awesome. Well, today what we're going to do is I'm going to take you chronologically through the moments when the tomb is discovered to be empty. How many of you have ever expected something and then it's not exactly how you expected? If you're a Cubs fan, your hand should definitely be in the air because it takes you 100 years to get a World Series. Right? Yeah. Okay. I got one Cubs fan. Right? So sometimes you expect things and they just aren't quite what you expected. And what happens? You're kind of like taken back, right? You're kind of, is, or is when things happen that you don't expect, you're like, yeah, I'm not surprised because I was wrong. Right? I don't know. I don't know how everybody's different. But for me, when I expect something and it's not the way I expected it to be, I'm like, oh, snap. And then I got to figure out, like, okay, so what, what was wrong? It was either my expectation and my lack of understanding or it was something else. And this is what we have with Easter, okay? There have, there have been, quote, unquote, messiahs and prophets long before Jesus in Greek culture, Roman culture, Assyrian and Babylonian culture. They had come and gone, come and gone, come and gone after Jesus, in the fall of, uh, fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, there was another Messiah that had come, and, and he was killed by the Roman Empire at the, at, um, in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. What, we've got an issue with this Jesus guy because he said, look, you're going to destroy this thing, and I'll, I'll be back in three days. Uh, that's kind of a bold statement. So if you make a bold statement like that and don't back it up, well, you're not who you say you are. The issue becomes... If you say that and then you back it up, we got a problem. You either are who you say you are, right? Jesus either, he, is, he either is God or he's, he's the most diabolical person to have ever lived. It, it can't be just like he's this good dude. He's this good guy. Because good people don't lie and then, then lead thousands upon thousands, of millions upon millions possibly billions of people down the wrong path. Good people don't do that, right? So we have then in this tomb two women coming. Now, there's a problem, there's a problem with the story already because in that culture, women were somewhere just above property, right? Like that's hard for us to comprehend in our society today. But women weren't allowed to testify in court. They were deemed too emotional, to get the story straight. Um, see me for marital counseling afterwards if you just made any kind of comment on that statement. Um, they were deemed in Roman culture too emotional to give an account of any type of story. They, they were allowed to work. They were allowed to earn an income and buy and sell. They could do that. Um, 
but that was about the extent of it, okay? And why then, if you're going to start a, if you're going to start a new belief system, do you take two people, one of them being a prostitute, and send them into the tomb only to go back and tell the men this thing had happened? That you wouldn't, look, if you were writing this narrative, you wouldn't do that. You'd be like, yeah, I got the president, and then I got this lawyer, and I got this, I got this athlete, and they all agreed that this, you would find the most powerful, influ influential people you could find to start the story, wouldn't you? But, like I said earlier, the ways of Christ in heaven are just sometimes so backwards from, our, from our, the way we think. And so these two women go in, and they're going in because Jesus had died the day before the Sabbath, and they couldn't work on the Sabbath. So if you're a Jew, the Sabbath, your holy day is Saturday, and it starts at sundown on Friday and ends at sundown on Saturday. So from sundown to sundown, from Friday night until Saturday night, that's your Sabbath, and you do no work. Jesus dies at noon. He gets buried. They're not able to go in and prep and take care of the body like they're supposed to, so they have to come on Sunday, which is the first day of the week for them, to do the work to take care of the body. So they're coming with linens and aloes and lotions, and, and, and they're coming with stuff, a perfume to cover up the smell and so on. They're coming with all of this to cover it up. And they get to the tomb, and because they got to the tomb and saw what they saw and spread the word, you and I are sitting here today because of two women who were the first ministers of the gospel that he has risen. The first, it seems like the first thing Christianity does is elevate the status of women. All right, I did, you did not come to hear a, woman write, a woman's rights sermon, but it's there, right? They pick, Jesus picks two women. The Holy Spirit picks two women. They go back and they get, and they tell all the, they tell all the men who are where? cowering in fear from the Roman government because if they take off, they already cut off the head of the snake. In their mind, they've already cut off the head of the snake. Now let's go after the rest of them. And that's what they're thinking. And they go back and they tell. Now, as we move through this chronologically, we're going to go across the four, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because they all record it a little bit different. That's not a problem because if there's an accident and you have different views of a car accident, everybody has a little different view. And so Matthew tells his view, John, Luke, um, and Mark all do the same thing. So we'll start in Matthew. As these women enter the tomb in Matthew 28, 5 through 6, if you don't have your Bible, it's up on the screen. It says, The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Now, this is so important because the first thing that they say, Come and see, right? Come and see. This is the Greek word horeo, H-O-R-A-O, if you're taking notes. H-O-R-A-O in the Greek, horeo. And horeo means to see, to perceive, to experience, discern, and be aware of. It has multiple meanings. Depending on how it's used in the sentence, you could use it multiple ways, right? We have words like that in the English. This is horeo. But if you stop and think about what it means, it means to see. If I see something, that is a physical interaction. I can phys physically see you 
right? Either smiling or sleeping during my sermon. I can see it. That's a physical thing. If I look at another definition of horeo, to perceive. I don't just see it, but I perceive. I understand with my intellect what's going on. You either stayed up way too late last night, or you didn't, don't want to be here listening to this dude tell me how to live my life and do whatever, so I'm just going to sleep, but at least I came because I made mom or grandma happy, right? I'm with you. Like, I was there one time. So, thanks, Dad. All right, so, right, you can perceive. So, horeo means to, you can see it physically. You can understand intellectually what it means. But then the other definition, not only to see physically and intellectually, but also means to experience. When you have an experience, what is that? That's emotion, right? We went to a theme park one time, and um, there was like, we went to Cedar Point, and there's like this maximum XL roller coaster. And it's like as tall as a space shuttle for those of you who are old enough to remember the space shuttle, as tall as a space shuttle um, on the launching pad. And then you take a dip, like, right? And it's crazy roller coaster. And everybody's like, yeah, let's ride it, let's ride it. And I'm like, I don't need that experience. That's not an experience that I'm really looking, I don't need that experience, right? So when you think about the emotion of that, of a roller coaster, an emotion of an event, right? The emotion of the big game. You have, you see it physically, you intellectually understand it, and you have an emotion, horeo. They are having a completely human meltdown. The angel says, come and see. Experience it with your emotions. See it with your eyes. Consider it intellectually. Walk in and see this. Here's what we have to understand, that if the resurrection is true and God designed us, then he wouldn't give us something that is only emotional. He wouldn't give us something that's only intellectual. He wouldn't give us something that's only physical. He would encompass the whole person. The resurrection of Jesus includes all that we are, emotions, intellect, and physical. Everything. It's been said that Christianity is just belief and you check your brains at the door. Yet if you start studying it, you're going to find out that's just completely the opposite. I've also met people on the other end of the spectrum professors at secular universities that know the Bible better than I do, but they don't believe any of it. It's just all intellectual knowledge. It's, it's like, but God comes and says, no, 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 you are a whole, you are a three-dimensional person, and because I love you, I want you to not only experience me emotionally, I want you to experience me intellectually, I want you to experience me physically. You're experiencing him physically when you clap and you sing or you have you talk to other people and other people talk to you and it strikes up and strikes something in you positive, right? This is God working through people and so when the when the women go to the tomb, when the women go to the tomb, the angel says, "See, Horeo, experience it, understand it emotionally, understand it intellectually and experience it physically." This is the invitation for us on Easter, to bring all that we are, all the good, all the bad, everything into the tomb of Christ. But then Mark records, different than Matthew, Mark then records the next thing that happened, that the angel is, let's look at Mark chapter 16, verse 5. 
It says, as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, right? Like, how could you not be? And so this young man is the Greek word neonaskos, N-E-A-N-I-S-K-O-S, neonaskos, for those of you who are taking notes. And neonaskos literally means a young man in his prime in middle to middle to young 30s. This word in the Greek literally describes a male angel or an angel that looks like he's about 30 to 35 in his prime. Right? So we know what this angel looks like. At least we have a description, a better description than just an angel. It's not just some little cherub with a harp sitting there like, hello, ladies. Right? That's not that. This is like, hey, ladies. Or something like that, right? This is like, <laughs> this, it's an angel. Calm down. And so this is a being that appears to be somewhere between 30 and 35 prime physical condition. And then it says he's dressed. This is peribalo, P-E-R-I-B-A-L-L-O, peribalo. Peribalo is the Greek word that describes clothing from the shoulders to the feet. So he's well-dressed. This, this word describes clothing that is, that is um, I don't even know like what teenagers say to describe somebody who's well-dressed. But um, he's like straight, whatever. He's like very well-dressed. Okay, I'll just say that. I'm so out of touch. So... And then he says robe. The Greek word robe here describes a garment worn by a military commander. Not only is he well-dressed, but this angel looks like a 30 to 35-year-old who was in their prime and jacked. Okay, I, well, that's just my interpretation, right? And like stacked. Ben's like, yeah, right? And he's wearing a robe that only a military commander wears. And he's sitting where Jesus' body was. This tells me that God didn't just send some angel with a little harp to sit there. He sent a messenger who meant business. This is serious. And if the God of the universe sends someone like that, a being, another being from another dimension like that to say, hey, sit up and pay attention, then it must be serious. This wasn't just any angel. This was a young, vibrant commander of importance. This is what the Greek tells us. And I just totally like, has anybody ever seen any Easter picture of that? Like, hey, he's not here, right? Okay, anyway, this is what Mark records in the Greek. This is literally what the Greek implies, strongly implies. Now, Luke, Luke was a physician. Luke was a doctor. Luke was not, Luke never walked with Jesus. Luke was commissioned by the local Roman government to go find out about this new Christian cult because they are atheists. Now, you have to understand, under the Roman Empire, if you did not have a carved idol or something physically you could see to worship, you were deemed an atheist. Kind of backwards, isn't it? <laughs> and so go find out what this new cult, these atheists are doing, Luke. Go record it. And so Luke is a physician, 
of a Roman government official. And so he begins to interview and he begins to record his gospel. Luke says in verse 24, verse 4, he says, while they were wondering about this, okay, so he's talking about the two women. They're like, who is this angel? And what's he doing here? And what's going on, right? So they're starting to kind of come around. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. Suddenly. That word, the word suddenly, I'm sorry, let's back up. The word wondering literally means to be dazed and confused. They're like, we, oh, geez, what's going on right now? Like, this isn't what I expected. And then it says, suddenly, instantaneously, next to them show two men who are white like lightning like that. Instantly just show up out of nowhere. This is the Greek word genomai, G-I-N-O-M-I. Genomai literally means to suddenly appear without warning. Nothing's there. Suddenly there stands this being. Okay. This tells me, kids are awesome, by the way. This tells me that the spiritual world is all around us. And I don't need to dive into scripture to point this out. But Hebrew tells us, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that we are walking amongst clouds of witnesses. That heaven is not out there somewhere in the sweet by and by. I know we sing it in the hymns. It's wrong. It is not biblical. It seems like everything the Bible points to heaven, it is simply another dimension that exists and fills the entire universe. And so it only makes sense. When you read the account of Jesus going up into heaven, he says, well, it says Jesus went up into heaven. In the English it does, but in the Greek it literally means that he just kind of stepped into. Like he just stepped into a different dimension when he left the disciples. Went from here to, went up on a mountaintop. Maybe he, I don't know, maybe there were stairs. I don't know. I mean, but... He just went into a different dimension. And it literally tells me that the spiritual world is all around us. This is what I said earlier, that God's intention has always been that earth and heaven would come together and interact and be together. And that one day, that's Jesus' plan. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that one day God's going to pull the veil back between the two dimensions and you will see physical people and you will see spiritual beings all interacting together. The two dimensions will be, the veil between the two will be ripped back and will all come together as one once Jesus comes back and shatters darkness and destroys the demonic force and destroys everything around us that is evil. And so this tells me, one, that the spiritual dimension is all around us. In Luke 24, verse 11, it's not going to be on the screen. Write it down. Look it up this week. And if you ever just want to, like, look up a Bible verse, you literally can go into your internet search engine browser and just type in Luke 2.4 colon 11. It's that simple. And then just pull it up. How many of y'all do that? Just out of curiosity, how many of y'all already do that? Yeah, okay, awesome. All right, so for the rest of you, you can do that now. All right. Luke 24.11 says, or it tells us, that the women, when they saw this, and all of this began to happen, they were like, okay, somebody's got to know. we got to go back and tell the others. we got to go tell Peter, James, John, 
and Simon. We got to go tell them all. So they go running back, and they're running like, "Whoa, my gosh!" I mean, can you imagine the run from the tomb back to the room where they're all hiding, waiting for the Roman government to kill them? And they're just like running. They're running, and then they get there, and they're telling them. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're one of those people hiding, and these two women come back and go, his body's gone. He's gone. And then we saw, like, this really jacked dude sitting on the end of the tomb. And then, like, two people look like lightning just suddenly poof, showed up. And <laughs> what's your first response going to be? I'm just curious. You're crazy? What else? Yeah? Like, what have you been smoking? Can I say that? I, I say that in church, right? Um, have you been smoking? Have you been doing lines? Like, what's going on here? Right? What's going on? They are, like, you guys got to be messed up. That's not even realistic, right? So what happens? What? It's possible. Is it even possible? Let me ask you this. Is it even possible that maybe what went through some of those people's heads is this is a setup by the Roman government to get us all out there, and then they're going to slay us? Maybe. But here's the interesting thing. The Bible tells us in John chapter 20, verses 3 through 4, John 20, 3 through 4 says that, okay, there you go. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Let me stop right there. When you read the gospel of John, he never references his, himself. This is just weird, John. He always says the other disciple, the other disciple. He never gives his name. Like, he always talks about himself in the third person. Isn't that just weird? Isn't that just weird? That'd be like me coming up to you and going, hey, you know, the, the other day there was this one guy that went to the car dealership to buy a new van, and, and, you're, and you'd be like, you mean you? Yeah, but, yeah, but the other guy, you know, just, anyway. Actually, John was very humble. He was very humble, actually. We know that from his personality type. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. So Peter and John are running for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So you have to understand, Peter and John were always butting heads during Jesus' ministry. They were always competing. John was very quiet and humble, kept to himself, introverted. Peter was very extroverted, stuck his foot in his mouth, said whatever he thought. And these two were always competing. So John just finally writes, I outran him. Ha, take that. I beat you, Peter. And then something happens. John outruns Peter. John's obviously faster than Peter. He outruns him. He gets to the tomb first, but he doesn't go in. Why? Multiple theories here. One of them is that if the Romans' soldiers come back and we're caught inside, we'll get the blame. Now, Peter doesn't care. Peter's like, Yes, let's go. Putting his foot in his mouth, talking. And so Peter just like, ha ha, I'm going in, and jumps in. And John's like, yeah. And Peter goes in, and he begins to look. Peter and John are the only two that leave. The others stay behind. The others don't go. How much of the power of God do we miss because we don't move towards Jesus? Peter and John experienced the power of God. The others didn't out of fear. Well, I don't want to go do that because. I don't want to. How much are we missing out on because of fear? How much 
are we missing out on? Because we don't run towards Jesus and the power of, of the Holy Spirit in operation through the message of Jesus Christ. How much are we missing out on? A lot. We're missing out on a lot. John 20 verse 5 says this. This is talking about John. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. The strips of linen. This is the Greek word, othonia, O-T-H-O-N-I-A. This is a big word. It's actually, it's actually not, it doesn't just mean clothing. It's a specific type of clothing. If I were to say Gucci, or for those of you who are old enough, Jordash, Right? If you understand, right? It, I don't even know, like, what's cool now. But so it's a specific type of clothing. And this is important to the story, very important to the story. It's fine linen that's from Egypt. In fact, it's usually only used, used for the extremely, extremely wealthy. You could not have this clothing unless you had the money to buy it. And by money, I don't mean hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's term. I'm talking about you're a multi-millionaire to buy this clothing. And this is what Jesus is wrapped in. Now, why would that be? Understand that Jesus was laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus these are two very powerful, rich, and influential people who believed in Jesus. Nicodemus was a high priest in the temple. He had tons of religious clout, well-connected and networked. Joseph of Arimathea was very influential in the Roman government, was a multi, 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 multi-millionaire by today's standards. And they were the ones that paid for the tomb, for the wrapping, and so on. And they paid for this. This word, Athonia, represents, because it comes specifically from Egypt, what's happening for the Jewish people this week. So they are celebrating what? Being restrained in Egypt in slavery. This is their week that they came out of slavery. Well, when did all that stuff with Moses happen? When did Moses take him out this week? Here's Jesus being constrained as a Jew by highly expensive clothing from Egypt. Do you see the symbolism here? I don't believe this is a mistake. God in his infinite wisdom says, I'm going to arrange Jesus, a Jew, to be buried in Egyptian clothing. And the one thing that nobody thinks anybody else can beat, death, he will beat it. And as a Jew, he will come out of his Egyptian clothing. And for all of humanity, bring life to all of humanity. That's not an accident. That's not a mistake. And if, here's, what I, here's what I want to tell you. Whatever is holding you back, I was listening to a Jewish rabbi this week, and he says that the term Egypt in Hebrew literally means to be constrained. 
All of us are constrained in some area of our life. All of us are slaves to an Egypt. It's an Egypt of an ideology or a way of thinking. It might be an Egypt or slave or ideology, not just an ideology, but slaves maybe to some sort of hurt that hurt us growing up as kids. It might be the way that people are bullying us and making fun of us. We are all trapped by something. And God says, enough. If you will believe in me, then you begin to see and understand. The world wants to tell us that, well, if you see, you're seeing is believing. But God says, no, that's your jacked up, fallen world way of thinking. In heaven, you believe, and then you begin to see. You begin to see this. Your past nor your condition define you. The power of the Holy Spirit defines you as a Christian. I don't care what you've been through. I don't care what you think. I don't care how you see yourself. I don't care how you identify. The power of the Holy Spirit will break the bondage of Egypt in your life. That is what Easter is about. And so if you're sitting there going, I'm just not smart enough to go to college. I'm just not good enough to get the promotion. Stop. That's your Egypt. And God says it does not have to define you. What is your Egypt that you've been buried, that's burying you? Because God says through the power of the Holy Spirit, I want to raise you up and pull you out of that. I'll never amount to nothing. I'm not good enough. You know one of the words that I hate the most? Just. I'm just a custodian. I'm just a principal. I'm just a customer service rep. I'm just... Stop it! That's, the word just has become your Egypt. The excuses you give yourself are your Egypt. And God says enough, come out. The question is, do you believe in God enough to say, Holy Spirit, rise up within me. It's time to break off my Egypt and walk out of this tomb. And tell the grim reaper I've had enough. Because that's what everybody in this room that believes in Jesus has told the grim reaper, you have no power over me. The death angel has no power over me. The Bible tells us that when the Christian dies, you just wake up in a different dimension. It's like waking up. I was in a dream. I woke up. Now I'm here. Here we are. Let's roll. For those who are not following Christ, the Bible gives us a very bleak, different picture. You're, what we have to decide is, am I all in on this thing or not? Because Jesus, a guy came to Jesus and said, hey, my dad's in ICU been given uh, three months to live let me go bury my dad once he dies and then I'll come follow you and Jesus said let your dad bury himself you come follow me that's what he said you're either all in or not there is no I want to pick this and then I want to pick that and then I'm going to pick that you then, then which part do you believe based on your intelligence or infinite intelligence? Do you really believe that in your 80 years of study that you can become smart enough to outthink thousands of people over the past 2,000 years with millions of hours of study who have dedicated their life with monks and everything else who have spent hours and years and decades studying that you can really outthink them? You're not going to. This is part of the intellectual side of Christianity. Do you think that emotionally... Do you think these women were stoic? Oh, he woke up out of the grave. Oh, yep, there's angels. All right, well, be right back. 
Hey guys, he's alive. I don't know. This is what that glowing dude like lightning said. Come on, right? You know it wasn't like that. It was a whole experience emotionally, intellectually, and physically. And this is what God says I want to do for you. Will you go all in with him? Jesus said in closing in Matthew 6, 21, he says something that runs contrary to our culture. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What did he put first? Treasure. He literally said, you choose what you treasure, and then your heart follows. What do we say? Follow your heart. Jesus says, no, no, no. You pick what you want to follow, and your heart will go there. This whole stuff about, oh, just follow my heart. It's so contrary and unbiblical. You choose what you're going to believe in. So my question to you this morning is this. Will you put your heart into Jesus and trust that he will begin to move your heart in that direction? Or are you just going to let your heart go wherever it wants to go and then be 40 years old and wonder what you did with your life and then 80 and look back and say, well, I should have, I could have. Or will you say, you know what, Jesus? I'm choosing this. I'm choosing you. And I know if I choose you that over time my heart and my emotions and my way of thinking will begin to move that way. This is what Jesus said. This is a Jewish way of thinking. I will put my heart, I will put my treasure, I will begin to treasure that. And because I choose to treasure that, my heart will begin to follow it. My emotions will eventually over time go that direction. My desires and my attractions will begin to eventually go that way if I choose to do that. That's what Jesus said. That is a very Jewish way of thinking. So I want to ask you this morning, as everybody stands up, and as we close, I'm going to ask Josh and Aaron to come up here, one on either side. If you're here this morning, and you've never intentionally, you've never intentionally said, I'm going to treasure Jesus and all that that means. And I know I'm not there fully because Jesus himself said, you put your treasure there and, and eventually you'll find your heart there. If that's you and you want to choose that, to begin to follow that and begin to experience Jesus intellectually, emotionally, and physically, I want to invite you to come forward as we close in song. Maybe you're here this morning and you have at one point made that decision, but you've just kind of stepped away from it. And you're like, man, there's just so much going on in the world. I don't understand what's going on. But you want to willfully choose to come back to Jesus. I want to invite you to come up this morning. And then the last thing, the third thing is this. If you need prayer for anything this morning, don't let this moment pass. The Bible says, but Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst. He said, if two of you will agree as touching anything, it will be done for you. Don't miss this opportunity to have two or three more people pray with you on whatever that issue is, to move heaven and earth with you. Amen? Amen. Amen. That invitation is here this morning as we close out in song.